It's a point of pride and justice to apply the law without the president's political self-interest taining its actions or dictating how it uses its authorities. But President Trump did find one candidate at justice who seemed willing to do anything to help him stay in power. Let's hear what President Trump's own lawyer, Eric Hirschman, had to say about Jeff Clark's plan to overturn the election. I'd like to advise viewers this video contains some strong language. And when he finished discussing what he planned on doing, I said, good. Okay, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> Congratulations, you just admitted a first step for act you take as attorney general would be committing a felony and violating Rule 60. You're clearly the right candidate for this job. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6th, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Coon. The introduction to this week's episode was provided by Representative Kinzinger and Eric Hirschman, uh, described, of course, as one of Trump's attorneys, in his video testimony before the committee, describing what Hirschman said to Jeff Clark on the occasion of what appeared to be Clark's imminent promotion to the position of the U.S. Attorney General, and his stated intent to end democracy in the United States by overturning the 2020 presidential election. Now, I know you can't actually see it, but as Kinzinger introduces Hirschman, uh, he has a, a bit of a smirk, uh, you know, because he knows what, what's coming next um, with regard to Hirschman's testimony there. Um, but, you know, I, I know I've talked about the question of who is going to be regarded by history as the, the best analog for John Dean. It's probably not Hirschman, but Hirschman certainly provides better sound bites than Dean ever did. Uh, he actually is the, the pithy attorney that I think uh, Bill Barr wishes that he was. This is yet another episode in response to the public hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, this time on the occasion of the fifth hearing, the hearing dedicated to the campaign by Trump and former acting Attorney General, sorry, acting Assistant Attorney General Jeff Clark, uh, sorry, Deputy Assistant, Deputy Attorney General, anyway, uh, to fire Acting Attorney General, everybody's acting, uh, Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen to overturn the over 2020 presidential election. But before we get to the recap of the hearing, I would like to spend a quick moment on the overturn of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court and some of the recent developments. I prefer to keep this podcast focused narrowly on January 6th, but obviously this is rather impossible to ignore. And there's a direct link, right? There's a direct link between the Supreme Court and the insurrection itself in the person of Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, first, a little bit of history. Republican appointees have held a majority in the Supreme Court ever since the botched nomination of Abe Fortas to the position of Chief Justice way back in 68, during the Johnson administration. Republicans had a majority on the court when Roe was decided, back in 1973, and in fact, they've had one, you know, again, ever since. And, oddly, you know, they didn't actually much care about abortion between 1973 and 1980. If you look at public opinion polls, um, Republicans were just as likely to be identified with pro-choice politics back then. Um, and yet, 
for me, the, the, the pivotal moment in this, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, uh, is 1980, when a plank was added to the campaign uh, platform for the presidential campaign of 1980 that opposed Roe v. Wade. And, of course, that election was the election that uh, saw the election of a former Democrat and former Union president, Ronald Reagan, who remade himself as a conservative icon, of course, while working in the employ of General Electric, uh, you know, way back, um, like 20 years prior. But anyway, Republicans only seem to really adopt this issue as a kind of a, a replacement for school segregation, as integration became uh, far more popular and ultimately became the national consensus. So they needed a, a kind of a culture war issue. And um, this seemed to work. It polled well among certain segments of the population. Uh, it was something that united conservative Catholics and conservative evangelical voters, the moral majority that was rising at that point in time. And so ever since then, the position of the National Republican Party on abortion has become ever more extreme, with fewer and fewer exceptions, you know, for rape or incest or uh, the life of the mother, uh, fetal abnormalities, things of that nature. Uh, many Republican states have trigger laws that would go into effect, that would eliminate effectively any of these exemptions from the moment of conception throwing away the, the trimester system that was codified in Roe entirely. Now, that being the case, it's still an awfully long time between 1980, which, you know, I mean, really it's the latest date. I mean, there are elements within the Republican Party, of course, who are opposing Roe from the outset back in 73. Nonetheless, really becomes the official position of the Republican Party in 1980. So, 42 years. It's a long time. That's a long 42 years where the Republicans have an unbroken majority on the Supreme Court where it's a litmus test issue for all Republican nominees to the Supreme Court, uh, at least since the Reagan administration. And Republicans, you know, held a majority on the court the entire period. The, the question arises, why didn't they do this before now? This, you know, they could have done this at any point in time. Now, my own personal belief on this, and I'm not alone on this, um, you know, I could probably look up and, and find a whole bunch of other people who have said something similar, but Republicans on the Supreme Court haven't or had not overturned Roe before now because they can actually get a variety of what are called secondary gains from not doing so. I'm borrowing that from psychology, right? Secondary gains, what does that mean? Basically, these are other things that they get. Uh, other than you know, the, the, the policy position, right? They get fundraising, they get activism. So, I mean, keeping Roe around as a political issue keeps many conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants utterly devoted to the Republican Party. It gives them a continuous source of money, activists, and voters. So, keeping abortion in play has any number of benefits for the Republican Party as a political institution. But the main problem for the Republicans is that the awareness that the Republican Party, if they were to actually overturn Roe, would no longer be nationally competitive. And again, people think, well, the Supreme Court, they don't care about politics. Well, maybe some people think that. The mainly political scientists who are wrong about things. Um, but in point of fact, 
deeply in a you know, political institution. And overturning Roe would cause a backlash that would really make the Republican Party a regional party, incapable of competing outside the South and the most conservative Western states. And members of the Supreme Court know this, of course, which basically is why they hadn't done it until last week. Well, obviously, they did it before that. You know, the decision was leaked uh, weeks earlier. Um, but, you know, again, that's, that's why they waited so long. There was a price to be paid. Now, as incomprehensible as it may seem to many of us, the Republican coalition nationally actually includes pro-choice voters. It's hard to fathom, but even today, according to Gallup, 10% of self-identified Republicans believe that abortion ought to be legal under any and all circumstances. That's right. I mean, you know, not... And again, if you look at, like, what Republicans are actually doing policy-wise, they're doing things where there's, there's no exemption. 10% of Republican voters believe that any and all circumstances, and presumably that's, that's all the way up to, you know... I mean, the, the, the horror stories, like, you know, people doing, quote, elective abortions, uh, you, you know, on 42-week babies, right? I mean, that's just absurd. It's not a thing that happens. The only time anything like that would ever happen, well, certainly wouldn't happen in 42 weeks, but, you know, again, um, is, you know, if someone's about to die, right? I mean, that's, that's when that happens. That's trivially small, I mean, not trivial in human terms. You know, the, the, the babies who you know, are, are about to be born, and these are usually wanted children. It's it's absurd. Nonetheless, you know, that's that's their position. It's like, you know, they think that people are just waiting, you know, for like 10 months just to, to get an abortion on a whim. Right? Just absolutely bizarre. Nonetheless, it may not seem like a lot, but when you add that 10% of Republican identifiers who oppose abortion, sorry, who support abortion under any and all circumstances, to the 36% of independent voters who also believe that abortion should be legal under all circumstances, that's a huge swing. That is the margin in an awful lot of states and districts. And indeed, it could even swing some districts that could be considered to be solidly Republican. We consider a district to be solidly Republican if Republicans enjoy a 5% margin. And, you know, when you've got that many Republicans, that many independents saying that they support abortion without limitation or restriction, that is a lot of people who presumably might have to reevaluate their positions. I don't believe that the Supreme Court operates in a political vacuum. Indeed, I think that politics, especially partisan politics, it's one of the few actual constraints on the court. When you add this to other rulings that have occurred, this move, overturning Roe, looks like a Hail Mary. The Supreme Court is pressing every advantage at this moment, issuing a slew of radical right rulings all at once. This is an absolutely maximal exercise of the power of the court, coming all at once with no pretense that stare decisis, the principle that decisions that have stood should stand, matters at all. This is not a court that is constrained by anything. I could give you a lecture on 
on judicial politics, right? The very different models of judicial politics, the legal model, the attitudinal model, the strategic model. This is, we would say, purely attitudinal, right? That the Supreme Court justices just do whatever the heck they want to. And at the moment, it appears that the court is acting like this. That, by the way, is not the preferred model among students of judicial politics. I'm not really one of them. I'm vaguely familiar with some of the literature. But it's not even just Roe, right? Uh, they're gutting gun laws in New York, and they're dismantling federal regulatory apparatus all at once. So these are things that the Republicans have wanted to do all along. So again, the question is, why now? Why did they wait until 2022, June of 2022? There are a couple of possible explanations that come to mind. The first is that Justices Thomas and Alito are actually secretly terminally ill, and they won't have a chance to do this again in the near future. I don't know how seriously that is. Uh, they're both bitter, angry old men. They'll probably live to be well into their 90s. Uh, nonetheless, you know, just a thought that occurred to me. Now, maybe that, that there, there is one absolute limit. Right, they're pointing to life, well, maybe that's that's a thing that is about to happen. Second possibility is that um, the Supreme Court, the six justices uh, on it in, in the, the Dobbs decision, have taken an honest reading of the body politic and believe that there's no price to be paid for this orgy of what they, under other circumstances, might call judicial activism. Third possibility, they think that Republicans are absolutely going to get slaughtered at the polls in 2022, no matter what. So they might as well rip off the Band-Aid now uh, so that sufficient time elapses between the midterm shellacking that they're going to get and, bef and between then and the 2024 presidential election. So maybe by then, voters will see it as, as water under the bridge. Fourth possibility is that they believe somehow that there will be enough Trumpists working at the state level in swing states that they'll be able to determine election outcomes. That maybe, you know, they've, the, the, they've got things rigged at the state level. Uh, you know, that two years of the so-called election integrity projects have done their work. They've got their voter suppression all ducks in a row. They've got their poll watchers. They've got violent militias to intimidate voters, militias, excuse me, paramilitary gangs to intimidate voters, and that sort of thing. That's the fourth possibility. Now, electorally, as I said before, this looks like suicide. Um, I mean, really, when you consider all the women who are likely to die from this no-exception abortion bans that are instituted by trigger laws, in red states, this is more like a bizarre forced murder-suicide scheme. Um, this is what happens when the dog finally catches the truck, right? You know, now what? The Republican Party line is that Dobbs only means that the issue of abortion is going to be handed back to the states. But a majority of the Sedition Caucus has signed on as co-sponsors to a bill that would restrict abortion nationwide. 
So that is clearly a lie. They did in 2021. The bill is certainly going to be reintroduced. The very first thing they did was to float this possibility of a law at the national level that would say that life begins at conception. So they've been using this line that all Roe does, all overturning Roe would do, would be to hand it back to the states, and then boom, the very minute that, that Dobbs comes down, Roe is overturned, the very first thing that they try to do is to uh, basically impose a nationwide abortion ban. Of course, I mean, it's a lie. That's, they're Republicans, that's just what they do. But this is also a powerful reminder to voters that uh, this isn't a great year to pretend that reproductive freedom isn't on the ballot. And there are going to be voters, particularly women, who might otherwise vote Republican, who are going to have to make a choice, right? What do you want? Do you want tax cuts? Or do you want your daughters bleeding out with ectopic pregnancies and molar pregnancies and all kinds of awful things that really, you know, could be taken care of medically, but which Republicans now are going to ban nationwide. Similarly, we've also had some primaries, and it's not really been great news for the Sedition Caucus. Although Trump is still king of the Republican Party, Trumpist extremist candidates haven't done particularly well. Madison Cawthorn and Mo Brooks, for example, incumbent members of the House, both lost their primaries. That's extraordinary. Now, Trump is doing things like, you know, basically strategically withdrawing from people where he thinks they look like losers because he hates losers. Um, but nonetheless, these are Trumpy candidates, right? And they're not alone. In Idaho, the incumbent lieutenant governor, Janice McEachin, uh, who is a 3%er, basically connected to the 3%er uh, paramilitary gang, probably a white supremacist. I mean, if you Google her, like half the pictures you see are people make it, you know, she's standing with people who are flashing the, the white supremacist, uh, white power sign. Um, anyway, she lost her primary challenge against the incumbent governor in Idaho by 20 points, nearly 60,000 votes, uh, you know, in a, a relatively small state uh, in terms of population. And, of course, in some earlier primaries, you had other Trump people lose you had Herbster losing in Nebraska, and Purdue, especially important for Trump, losing in Georgia uh, to Brian Kemp. So, you know, again, the, it doesn't actually bode well. Yes, you have things like Dr. Oz, but again, tr of course he's going to pick Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is on television, right? I mean, Trump himself uh, worships at the altar of celebrity. He himself is a part of it. After all, you know, they'll let you do anything when you're a star, right? So, you know, I'd love to be able to say definitively that this is a kind of a last hurrah from a political movement that's essentially spent, that is exercising its power before it fades away. Um, maybe that's, just, again, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. This could be a, a kind of abandoned-like effort to just throw a mess of shit at the wall and see what sticks, right? Extremist news outlets have been focusing on the possibility of a supposed night of rage sponsored by a group called Jane's Revenge. But in the end, that particular protest was little more than a feisty pro-choice protest. It wasn't, you know, cities didn't burn. 
most of the violence that occurred in the immediate aftermath of Dobbs, the overturning of Roe, has been directed by police against largely peaceful protesters. And I think OAN and Fox and the far right generally would love to see something like the summer of 2020, when, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, far-right agents provocateurs and uh, a certain number of opportunists as well, of course, see, took a hold of protests in such a way that right-wing news echo chambers were able to depict the story as one of general lawlessness by the left. And, you know, again, certainly so far, uh, police around the country have been very willing to commit violence against pro-choice protesters. And the Department of Homeland Security, uh, what an utter joke they are, right? You know, they failed to really act at all, despite the fact that, you know, many open-source intelligence people saw the possibility of violence on January 6th. Um, you know, and part of it's like, you know, I, I personally, yeah, I saw that, and I was like, whatever. I mean, this is obvious. They're going to see what's going on, and we don't have to worry. I mean, this is so, and they did nothing. Right? They stood down. They stood back. That they didn't really even stand by. So, you know, the police are certainly mobilized, obviously, in asymmetrical fashion. They're always willing to mobilize against the left. Always willing to mobilize against, you know, angry women, of course, right? You know, they are very, uh, you know, they've got their riot gear on, and they've got sticks, and they're certainly willing to, to beat angry women who are protesting for their rights. 40% of them do that at home as well. Probably not a big surprise. And then there's a the matter of Nicholas Roski. Nicholas Roski is a 26-year-old California man who traveled to Brett Kavanaugh's house in Maryland, claiming that he was having a mental health crisis and who expressed a desire to kill Kavanaugh. Uh, he called the police on himself and said, I'm having a mental health crisis and I, I want to kill Kavanaugh. I was charged with attempted murder. He called the police on himself. He never produced his weapon. He never fired a shot. That story resulted in the almost immediate bipartisan passage of a law intended to provide security for Supreme Court justices and their families, but there's been very little scrutiny of Roski. And yet one of the few details to emerge about him in a story by, uh, from the local press in California that didn't get picked up nationally, you can find it on my Twitter feed, um, is that Roski, uh, though he graduated from a public high school, was nonetheless homeschooled for at least part of his education using materials from the non-denominational church his family attended at the time. And if you're familiar, many of these non-denominational churches are uh, loosely, they're a loosely affiliated network of evangelical mega-churches. And the, that church had, was non-denominational, but it has since merged with a Baptist church and somehow mysteriously changed affiliation to become an evangelical church. But I use that word advisedly. This particular brand of the evangelical churches, uh, it's a splinter church from the Swedish evangelical church in America. Now, most of the Northern European evangelical churches in the United States uh, are mainline Protestant churches. Um, most of them wound up joining the Church of Christ. 
But if you look at this particular group, look at their doctrinal resolutions, um, you see that they are evangelical in both senses, right? They come from uh, this, you know, Northern European and Protestant evangelical tradition, Evangelische uh, Kirche, um, and they are nonetheless also evangelical in the American sense, right? They're opposed to gay rights. They're opposed to abortion. They're very theologically conservative. And so, you know, and it, it's just very strange. This Roski story is very strange. There's been far too little, little press attention to this. Um, you know, this guy uh, apparently expressed some, he was disconcerted by the fact that the Supreme Court appeared to gut gun laws. And yet, what anti-gun activist thinks that the solution to this involves a Glock 17, right? I mean, that's, that's patently absurd, right? That's not something that if you're opposed to guns, you don't think the solution involves guns. And again, he didn't fire a shot. He didn't fire a shot and he called the cops on himself and he just said that he was an assassin. So it's certainly odd. So where are we now? Well, obviously, not everything is about January 6th, which is why that even though we had Buffalo, which is horrific white supremacist attack on innocent people of color, black community, deliberate targeting of innocent people uh, in the cause of this white supremacist race war, and Uvalde, uh, where you know you have innocent children, nine-year-olds being slaughtered while police stand by. Um, I didn't talk about those, right? So I try to keep this focus on January 6th. Not everything's about January 6th. Nonetheless, you know, again, we've got this link between January 6th and the Supreme Court and the person of Jenny Thomas. Roe itself being overturned in Dobbs is the result of a 40-year, maybe 50-year campaign. We can disagree on the dating, but again, I've explained why I put it at 40 years, 1980, the inclusion of the anti-Roe plank, the anti-choice plank in the Republican Party platform when Reagan was on the ticket. It's going to result in real harm to women. Um, you know, paradoxically, the birth rate might even go down as some people who could get pregnant might opt for sterilization rather than risk pregnancy in a country where the state has outlawed abortion for all reasons at any time. Politically, I think it might be the case that they've looked at the polling numbers in the Supreme Court and decided that, you know, uh, given what they know is coming, uh, you know, in terms of the January 6th committee and what more is still to come, maybe it's time for them to make a moonshot. Just do everything at once without any regard for electoral consequences or the legitimacy of the court. Just Chief Justice Roberts supposedly cares for the legitimacy of the court. Nonetheless, he sided with the majority. So, you know, we know what to think of that guy. He makes these noises about legitimacy and stare decisis. They all talked about stare decisis. Nonetheless, they were all in the majority willing to make this massive change. So, in game theoretical models of political behavior, there's a phenomenon called the shadow of the future. Um, these are things such as the prisoner's dilemma, right? And I don't want to get 
too deep in the weeds. I'm not even a big believer in game theory. Nonetheless, I think it's applicable. Um, you have these uh, different equilibrium solutions, wherein, you know, let's say you have two defendants, they're called in by the police. The person, and there's usually four different cells, the person who rats out the other person uh, gets a, a good outcome. The person who, you know, if you have one person ratting and another person ratting, that's the best outcome for that person. Both, both people ratting is sub-op is suboptimal for the individual, but might be a good uh, solution. Well, it won't be a good solution for the individual. Probably the best solution for them individually is no one ratting at all. Anyway, you can have these possibilities of cooperation, right, over the course of a prisoner's dilemma. Um, or any kind of other, roughly speaking, game-theoretic approach to these kinds of political problems. And yet, if you have an iterated game where there's multiple realms of play, there is this situation called the Shadow of the Future, where in the last round, there's an incentive to stop cooperating, right? So if the Supreme Court thinks that this is the last round, this is their last shot, they don't need to worry about institutional legitimacy. They don't need to worry about whether or not their party is going to do well in upcoming elections, because for them, it's the last round. I mean, literally, you've got some of them who are actually going to die soon. Oh. Um, and you've got, you know, uh, this, this possibility of electoral losses. So that could be what we're saying, right? The shadow of the future, they are going big because they know that you guys will peel off the band-aid now. So those are just my first impressions of the connection between Roe, the overturning of Roe, Dobbs, and the current environment framed by the January 6th series of cases and hearings. Now, Let's turn to some of the issues surrounding the fifth hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, which commenced at 3 p.m. on Thursday, June 23rd, and lasted for two hours and 35 minutes. Once again, there was a deviation from the seven-part plan agenda that Liz Cheney has put forward, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, insofar as this hearing was the fifth hearing and yet was originally scheduled to be the second hearing, which was supposed to cover step two of Cheney's synopsis of the plan, which is this, quote, two, President Trump, Trump corruptly planned to replace the acting attorney general so the Department of Justice would support his fake election claims, end quote. So this was the hearing that was supposed to originally take place on Wednesday, June 15th. And it was supposed to be about step two, right? Now, with regard to the rescheduling of this particular hearing, four different members gave four different reasons for why it was to be re rescheduled. And each of these explanations, you know, things like, oh, well, we need to record some new video, or, well, it's no big deal. Uh, there were just scheduling conflicts. Literally, four different members Four different explanations. To my mind, as a contrary person, that's significant in and of itself, right? I, they, I mean, oddly, they, they didn't even get their story straight on that. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence 
that in the early morning hours of June 23rd, the government served a search warrant on a former acting Deputy Attorney General, Jeff Clark, the man who would be Attorney General, as I discussed in the last episode. It appears that this, uh, this service actually resulted from a DOJ OIG investigation. Uh, and it's appropriate and fitting that the uh, Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Justice would be looking into Jeff Clark's activities. So, again, I take this as evidence of some degree of coordination between the committee and the Department of Justice. As I've been saying all along, it's a two-track investigation. Someone in the Department of Justice called up the committee and said, hey, uh, could you just hold off on that Jeff Clark hearing? Because he's about to be served. We're also very interested in this. I just don't buy the coincidence. This is just another example where it actually appears that the government kind of has their shit together, right? They know what they're doing. And, um, you know, the cooperation may not be close, but on big issues like we're going to serve Jeff Clark next week. We've had this grand jury impaneled. We've got subpoenas. Uh, or the DOJ OIG, sorry, the DOJ OIG is investigating. Um, just hold off on that. You know, that theory is more parsimonious than the, the four different theories that are offered by Kinzinger and Raskin and Thompson um, with regard to why they delayed the hearing. So... Also, remember that this was not actually even the first reshuffle. Remember that as originally scheduled, hearings 6 and 7 were supposed to be about steps 6 and 7, which are these. Step 6, quote, President Trump summoned and assembled a violent mob in Washington and directed them to march on the U.S. Capitol. Step 7, as the violence was underway, President Trump ignored multiple pleas for assistance and failed to take immediate action to stop the violence and instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. Now, as you know, as a regular listener, I expected great things from what was supposed to be hearing number six, the one where Trump assembles the mob. And I've made multiple references here in the podcast to my pet theory before, that the committee has evidence that connects members of the mob to insiders, that organizers paid violent men, some of whom are homeless or in group housing, right? So people like Avery McCracken and Shane Bean Jenkins, uh, most of whom have criminal records, that these people were recruited through things such as congressional campaigns. And organizers paid these men to go to the Capitol brought them to D.C. for the express purpose of attacking police. I take Cheney's assertion that, quote, Trump assembled the mob may be a much more literal assertion of the facts than many people seem to believe. Now, I'm not going to go over the list of the violent men I've identified before uh, as people, you know, who may have been brought to the Capitol by the organizers, but again, this is one of the unexpected bombshells that I expect. Not expecting me, obviously, or to you. But I think to the general public, right, for whom things that we've known about for over a year seem to be unexpected for some reason, this detail, I think, will be particularly damning. 
Also, by the way, I did give this information to the committee, but they never heard back. It, you know, it could be that they already had this information or that they just identified me as yet another kook with a pet theory. Anyway, hearings six and seven were supposed to be this week, but they moved them back until after the recess, which I figured would give me more time to work on this episode. But then, uh, on the afternoon of the 27th, they announced that the members of the committee would return to D.C. for a surprise hearing on the 28th, with a surprise witness and surprise evidence. And we now know that that surprise witness with surprise evidence is Cassidy Hutchinson, former senior aide to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, whom I have talked about earlier. Now, my guess is that much of the evidence that Hutchinson was supposed to provide was going to be in the seventh hearing, the hearing that was supposed to be about what Trump was doing in the White House on January 6th. And they've moved it up in a surprising fashion. There's been speculation that this was due to security threats to Hutchinson. We really don't know. Uh, the, the committee is somewhat inscrutable, and I think some of this actually is serving to keep um, the insiders and the organizers off balance, as well as me, right? Um, you know, I had thought, again, I'd have time to, to produce this a little bit longer, but in, in fact, I actually worked on a couple of other different little projects. It's fine. Anyway, so we'll see what Hutchinson has to say uh, today on the 28th of June. Also, another late-breaking story before I actually get to the content of the fifth hearing is that House, former House Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stenger is now apparently dead, reportedly shot outside of his apartment. Now, this has been reported from various, uh, you know, like Fox News, I believe the Washington Times, uh, maybe not the best news outlets to, to consider. Uh, the information, however, was re re uh, sort of repeated by the Independent, and again, you know, even right-wing news outlets, I don't think they're going to make up something like somebody eating a bullet, right? I mean, this is someone who is dead. I mean, I don't think that they are going to make that up. I could be wrong. Uh, the Wikipedia entry apparently says, let's wait on confirmation from a real news outlet. Um, but it seems credible to me. Anyway. Uh, the, the Independent has actually had extremely reliable January 6th coverage, and they have reported the story. And there are limits to even what Fox News can make up. You know, they can make up all kinds of bizarre lies about Italy Gate and uh, Italian space lasers, orbital mind control lasers, and COVID vaccines. But when it comes to something like an actual dead body of a prominent public figure, that, I think, is, is something that, you know, they're probably not going to just fabricate out of whole cloth. So, at this point, we're still waiting for actual confirmation from a reliable news source that former House Sergeant-at-Arms Michael Stinger has died. It's up on his Wikipedia page. Um, Newsweek has reported it, but Newsweek isn't who they used to be. The Daily Mail has reported it. Epoch Times, I mean... You know, various right-wing outlets are reporting it. I always take these with a grain of salt. 
nonetheless, I, I, again, this is the death of a public figure. I don't think even these outlets would misreport that. Nonetheless, it's not being reported in the usual outlets. Adam Kinzinger um, from the January 6th committee has actually tweeted uh, about Snyder's death, uh, basically saying that Tucker Carlson is going to have a field day with this and there's going to be conspiracy theories. Uh, so I think that this being a, you know, a person who was involved and Kinzinger being a high-ranking, well, an important part of the committee, um, he would know. He would be in a position to know. So it's likely that Michael Stinger is dead. Um, again, the reporting originally was he was shot outside of his apartment, but we still really don't know. Could be a heart attack for all we know. Could be entirely unrelated, a random act of violence. I, I know I sometimes engage in speculation, but it's still, still really too early to say in that regard. So, yeah, also, um, just another note, very quickly, uh, it appears that the, uh, the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General of the Justice Department, has Eastman's phone. So, that's significant, right? It takes a certain amount of time for them to go through the process to obtain someone's phones and other electronic records and uh, documents and devices. So, that is significant. It means that they've been looking at Eastman for quite some time. Um, you know, with regard to the grand juries, that yeah, I would say January, February, right? I mean, you know, all the other things that have come out. Yeah, so the DO, the DO, I always want to say DOD OIG, right? The DOJ OIG um, is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, this is the basically the Office of the Inspector General for the Justice Department. So these are the people who police the, the police. So th this is actually, in a sense, probably even, you know, I want to say more serious than the FBI, but if I were John Eastman, I would get a very good lawyer, as uh, Mr. Hirschman always likes to say. Now, this hearing actually followed a little bit of a different format than the previous hearings, in that uh, they had all featured one set of witnesses, then a break, then a new set of witnesses. This hearing had the same set of witnesses throughout the entire hearing. And the witnesses testifying in person were Jeffrey Rosen, the former acting attorney general under Trump, Richard Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, and Stephen Engel, former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. The hearing was presided uh, over, as always, by Chairman Bay Thompson of Mississippi and Vice Chair Liz Cheney of Wyoming. The lead presenter for the hearing was Adam Kinzinger, of Republican of Illinois, who, of course, uh, this is going to be his, his last session in Congress, um, and it was his turn. So he apparently was leading the team that was looking into the improper efforts to pressure the Justice Department to apply the weight of the Justice Department to states uh, to basically say it was corrupt and let the Republicans and Trump do the rest. Now, the broad brushstrokes of what was testified to in this hearing were already known. In fact, uh, since last fall, 
uh, late summer, uh, early fall, when they had the testimony from the committee uh, with Jeff Rosen. Um, but basically, a lot of it concerns this meeting in the Oval Office between Jeff Clark and Trump on the one hand, and Pat Cipollone, and a whole variety of White House and Justice Department attorneys. So basically all the top lawyers at the DOJ, Pat Cipollone and others, basically threatened to quit in mass if Trump were to fire Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark. Clark, of course, uh, was called before the committee and took the Fifth Amendment uh, over 125 times. So we, we don't get his side of the story, right? And that's, you know, part of what they say, well, this isn't balanced. Well, yeah, it's, it's not balanced because all the witnesses on the other side are taking the Fifth Amendment, right? If you want balance, Jeff Clark or Donald Trump could go before the committee and offer their testimony. So we're hearing from, you know, again, what you might want to call a team normal or the people who, you know, despite being Trumpists and Trump appointees, stood up for the rule of law in the waning days of the Trump administration. So as always, I'll try to focus on some of the things that were new and one of the things that was new and compelling, and I liked the way they did it, was Liz Cheney, in the beginning of the hearing, teases the idea that they're going to tell us what members of Congress reportedly sought pardons from the Trump administration. Um, and again, we, this talk of pardons had been floated, but, uh, you know, I thought it was good that they went, they, they teased something, right, gives you a reason to stay to the end. And that's, in, in effect, what they did. We'll get to that in a moment. So sometimes, you know, they've, they've given this, uh, they've, they've done things in odd order, right? You know, they've, here they did everything absolutely right. You know, they give they give the, the viewers, the listeners, a reason to stay to the end. It's like, oh, this is new and different. We haven't heard about this before. And then they, they'll talk about it at the end. Even though it's, in a sense, not immediately related, right? This hearing was all about the Justice Department, all about Jeff Clark and his ambition to become the acting attorney general of the United States and his utter willingness, willingness to do anything to violate the law on Trump's behalf in order to become the Attorney General of the United States, a position for which all the other attorneys seem to feel he was not qualified for, right? So Jeff Clark is the kind, they, you know, they characterize him as an environmental lawyer. He's, he works the environmental law, right? But representing polluters, representing, you know, if there's an oil spill and you're an oil company, Jeff Clark is the guy you call. Uh, so that's, that's what he does, and he likes to play that up. But basically, this is not a white hat kind of guy, right? This is the kind of guy who spent his career trying to get scumbags off the hook for millions of dollars of environmental destruction. So, of course, of course, he's a perfect person to be in charge of the Justice Department's environmental efforts in the Trump administration, right? You're not going to put someone in there who's going to protect the environment and enforce existing law to protect the environment you're going to put someone in there who's going to protect polluters, and that's exactly what Jeff Clark has done for his entire career. And at the center of this is a letter that Clark wrote, supposedly, uh, on behalf of the Trump administration. 
And this, again, was kind of his, uh, you know, uh, his, like his CV. This is like his bona fides. This was a letter that he basically was ready to go with the moment he becomes acting Attorney General of the United States, dated December 28th, 2020. Now, this letter was aimed at Georgia, although, of course, Clark undoubtedly would have wound up sending this to the other states that the Trump administration sought to target to overturn their election results. It reads a part, quote, uh, well, first, it, it cites a lot of uh, various sources, right, including just, you know, news reports and opinion pieces, claiming, hey, there was fraud. And, and these claims, by the way, are, are even less well-documented than, than many of the, you know, uh, supposed claims of fraud that the, the Trump team had issued. I think in part because um, Clark knew that a lot of those were, were out-and-out lies, right? He doesn't cite, for example, the, the Antrim County claims, which have been so thoroughly debunked. Um, so what he, and again, what he does here is to give basically some bullshit and then say, hey, we, you know, in, in light of this, we need to overturn the Democratic election of the presidency in 2020. So basically, yeah, according to this nonsense that I just cited, right, I mean, you know, the Tennessee Star, again, these are not findings from courts. These are, you know, just things that Clark says are true, basically. Quote, the department, he's speaking for the Justice Department here, the department recommends that the Georgia General Assembly should convene a special session so that its legislators are in a position to take additional testimony receive new evidence, and deliberate on the matter consistent with the, its duties under the U.S. Constitution. Now, again, they actually have duties with regard to, you know, the, the, the state constitution. It's, it's odd that he doesn't mention that. Time is of the essence as the U.S. Constitution tasks Congress with convening in joint session to count electoral college certificates, to consider objections to any of those certificates and decide any compete between any competing slates of elector certificates. And U.S. Codes, uh, 3 U.S. Code Section 15 provides that this session shall begin on January 6, 2021, with the Vice President presiding over the session as President of the Senate. And he goes on to cite, uh, you know, similar irrelevancies. Talks about the, the case in Fulton County which, again, already debunked with regard to the, the claims about the, the suitcases full of, of votes, right? Uh, he writes, quote, Given the urgency of these, this serious matter, including the Fulton County litigation's sluggish pace, the department believes that a special session of the Georgia General Assembly is warranted and is in the national interest. Again, this is highly irregular for the U.S. Department of Justice. To do. They don't actually have a role and calling for a special session of the Georgia General Assembly. And it takes a rather extraordinary step of saying, well, we want you to evaluate, evaluate the right irregularities, determine whether those violations, which candidate for one, show which candidate won the most legal votes in the November 3rd election, and whether the election failed to make a proper and valid choice between the candidates, such that the General Assembly could take whatever action is necessary to ensure that one of the slate's electors cast on December 14th will be accepted by Congress 
on January 6th. I'm basically laying it out there, right? You know, not this isn't going to be a deliberative process. He's basically proposing that you should ratify the fake slate of electors that we rigged up instead of the legitimate slate of electors that was duly appointed. And moreover, he goes in, and again, this is an environmental lawyer. This is, you know, a complicated uh, question regarding constitutional law. And I think he's probably relying on Eastman here. Uh, he says, quote, We share with you our view that the Georgia General Assembly has implied authority under the Constitution of the United States to call itself into special session, italics, emphasis added by them, him, for the limited purpose of considering issues pertaining to the appointment of presidential electors. This, of course, is complete and total nonsense. But that's not going to stop Jeff Clark. Quote, the Constitution specifies that presidential electors shall be appointed by the legislature of each state. So he's going all the way back to, you know, saying, well, we're just going to have state legislatures decide elections now. And he goes on, the Supreme Court has explained that the electors clause, quote, leaves it to the legislature exclusively to define the method of appointing electors, vesting the legislature with the broadest power, possible power of determination. Again, there's state law, right? And this was done in accordance already with state law. Clark knows it. And he's basically advising the Georgia General Assembly to violate state law in this regard. There's complete and utter indifference to the rule of law, and complete, if he's sincere here, he's completely and totally ignorant of the way this process is supposed to work. And extraordinarily, this letter that was drafted by Clark has uh, the signatures, well, actually signature lines, says sincerely, Jeffrey Rosen, Acting Attorney General, Richard Donahue, Acting Deputy Attorney General, Jeffrey Bosset Clark, Acting Assistant Attorney General, Civil Division. So, yeah, he's affixed his boss's signature to this document, right? And again, highly improper. And is taking it, you know, to Trump. And they're trying to use this as a cudgel to get Rosen to sign off on it. And failing that, Trump is going to fire Rosen and appoint Clark in his place. So that he can send this letter out to you know, pressure state legislatures to undo the democratic process in the 2020 election. So everything Clark did in this process was improper and in service of his own ambition. For me, one of the most remarkable moments occurs when Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen is discussing the process by which Trump is, you know, basically trying to say, you're fired and putting Jeff Clark in place. And he basically, Jeff Clark does this. Jeff Clark tries to fire his boss. Did he tell you that the president had offered him the job of acting attorney general? That was uh, a day later. On the, on the second, he, he said that the president had asked him to let him know if he'd be willing to take it. Subsequently, he told me that uh, on, the, on Sunday the 3rd, told me that the timeline had moved up and that the president had offered him the job and that he was accepting it. What was asked about that? What was your reaction to that? Well, uh, you know, on the one hand, I wasn't going to accept 
being fired by my subordinate, so I wanted to talk to the president directly. Um, with regard to uh, the reason for that is I wanted to try to convince the president not to go down the wrong path that Mr. Clark seemed to be advocating. Um, and it wasn't about me. There's only 17 days left in the administration at that point. I would have been perfectly content to have either. So uh, basically, Rosen would have been happy to, you know, be replaced by Donahue here, right? Um, rather than, again, Jeff Clark, who is not really in the chain of command. He's, this is not his job to take. And yet he's trying to fire his boss here, which is absurd. If you're familiar with the chain of command in the government, you don't get to just willy-nilly fire your boss. And, of course, that's not the only improper thing here, right? Everything Jeff Clark did was improper and not according to policy. You don't breach the chain of the command in the way that Clark does, and yeah, he, he, he does this continuously, right? He's talking to people he's not supposed to be talking to. And this comes even in late December when Jeff Clark somehow winds up being, you know, the head of the acting head of the civil division somehow starts suddenly being discussed as the person to replace Jeff Rosen because Jeff Rosen won't overturn the election results. Here's Kinzinger questioning Rosen on that. Mr. Rosen, after your call with President Trump on December 24th, you spoke with Mr. Clark on December 26th about his contact with the president. Can you tell us about that conversation? Yes. Um, because I have been quizzical about why his name had come up, I called him, and I uh, tried to explore if he would share uh, if there was something I ought to know. And after some back and forth, he acknowledged that shortly before Christmas, he had gone to a meeting in the Oval Office with the President. That, of course, uh, surprised me, and uh, I asked him, how did that happen? And he was defensive. He said that it had been unplanned, that he had been talking to uh, someone he referred to as uh, General Perry, but I believe as Congressman Perry, and that unbeknownst to him, he was asked to go to a meeting, and he didn't know it, but it turned out it, it was at the Oval, he found himself at the Oval Office, and, uh, and he was apologetic for that. And I said, well, you didn't tell me about it. It wasn't authorized, and you didn't even tell me after the fact. This is not, not appropriate. Uh, but he was contrite and said it had been inadvertent and it would not happen again, and that if anyone asked him to go to such a meeting, he would notify Rich Donahue and me. Is there a policy that governs uh, who, who can have contact directly with the White House? Yes. So across many administrations for, for a long period of time, there's a policy that, uh, particularly with regard to criminal investigations, restricts at both the White House end and the Justice Department end those more sensitive issues to the highest ranks. So for criminal matters, the policy for a long time has been that only the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General from the DOJ side can have conversations about criminal matters with the White House, uh, or the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, can authorize someone for a specific permission, but the idea is to make sure that the top rung of the Justice Department knows about it and is in the thing to control it and make sure only appropriate things are done. 
Mr. Rico, from your perspective, why is it important to have a, a policy like Mr. Rosen just discussed? Well, it's critical that the Department of Justice conducts its criminal investigations free from either the reality or any appearance of political interference. And so people can get in trouble uh, if people at the White House are speaking with people at the Department, and that's why the purpose of these, these policies uh, is to keep these communications as infrequent and at the highest levels as possible, uh, just to make sure that people who are uh, less careful about it, who don't really understand these implications, such as Mr. Clark, uh, don't run foul uh, of, the, of those contact policies. Thank you. So the Select Committee conducted an informal interview with the White House Counsel Pat Cipollone and his Deputy Pat Philbin about their contact with Mr. Clark, uh, though neither has yet agreed to sit for transcribed and videotaped interviews. But Pat Cipollone told the Select Committee that he intervened when he heard Mr. Clark was meeting with the President about legal matters without his knowledge, which was strictly against White House policy. Mr. Cipollone and Mr. Philbin, like Mr. Rosen, told Mr. Clark to stand down, and he didn't. On the same day, Acting Attorney General Rosen told Mr. Clark to stop talking to the White House, Representative Perry was urging Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to elevate Clark within the Department of Justice. You can now see on the screen behind me a series of texts between Representative Perry and Mr. Meadows show that Representative Perry requested that Mr. Clark be elevated within the department. Representative Perry tells Mr. Meadows on December 26th that, quote, Mark, just checking in as time continues to count down. 11 days to January 6th and 25 days to inauguration, we've got to get going. Representative Perry followed up and says, quote, Mark, you should call Jeff. I just got off the phone with him. And he explained to me why the principal deputy won't work, especially with the FBI. They will view it as not having the authority to enforce what needs to be done. Mr. Meadows responds with, I got it. I think I understand. Let me work on the deputy position. Representative Perry then texts, Roger, just sent you something on signal. Just sent you an updated file. Did you call Jeff Clark? My apologies for the length of that clip, but again, the highest levels of the White House are supposed to be insulated from the highest levels of the, I'm sorry, the lower levels of the Justice Department, basically the Attorney General and others authorized by him. But he's not supposed to be talking to people like Jeff Clark. And yet we see Jeff Clark waging this campaign, and it's involving the White House. It's involving the President. It's involving people like Scott Perry. So, uh, and again, to my mind, the fact that you've got Scott Perry texting back and forth with Mark Meadows and then sending him documents on Signal and encrypted that, that is probably in and of itself a violation of several rules regarding uh, official government communications and secrecy. I don't know why members of Congress are using signals to signal, right, to communicate with the White House Chief of Staff. And so Perry's in it up to his neck as well. So it's not just about Clark, right? So basically Perry is the one who brings Clark into it and says, hey, like this guy is willing to do what Jeff Rosen isn't willing to do. And Perry then winds up calling Mr. Donahue. Mr. Donahue, uh 
Representative Perry called you the next day uh, on December 27th. Who, who told him to call you? My understanding is the president did at the outset of the call. Congressman Perry told me that he was calling at the behest of the president. What did, what did he want to talk about? He wanted to talk about Pennsylvania in particular. Um, he gave me some background about you know, why he in particular doesn't trust the FBI and why the American people don't necessarily trust the FBI. And then he went in to some allegations specific to Pennsylvania, which included, amongst others, this allegation that uh, the Secretary of State had certified more votes than were actually cast. Did you uh, direct the local, U the local U.S. Attorney's Office to investigate that claim? So Mr. Perry said that he had a great deal of information, that investigations had been done, that there was some sort of forensic-type report that would be helpful to me. And I, I didn't know Congressman Perry. I'd never heard him before this conversation. But I said, sir, if you've got something that you think is relevant to what just department's mission is, you should feel free to send it to me. I mean, he did, and I was in route from New York to Washington. I got it. I looked at it on my iPhone. Obviously, I couldn't read the whole thing that in transit like that, but I looked at it to get a feel for what it was, and then I forwarded to the uh, United States Attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Did they get back to you? What did they conclude? Scott Brady looked at it. He was the Western District of Pennsylvania U.S. Attorney. Um, took him a couple days, but uh, he got back relatively short order with a pretty clear explanation for why there was no foundation for concern. Right. So surprise, surprise, no foundation for, for concern. The Secretary of State had not certified uh, more votes than there actually had been registered voters. It was, of course, complete, unadulterated nonsense. And it's remarkable. This is all occurring after the safe harbor date. And you have members of Congress who are unknown to Mr. Donahue, right? Like Scott Perry, never heard of ne never heard of this guy before, calls up the Deputy Attorney General of the United States and says, hey, I've got this thing, and you know, winds up sending it on to the AUSA's, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Western District of Pennsylvania. And they, they actually look into this, which is just remarkable, right? Just a, the, the waste of time and resources spent on this kind of nonsense. Um, nonetheless, you know, it, it, it was treated seriously, even though it's basically bullshit. And, um, so again, part of this overall pressure campaign, you've got Clark trying to get his boss fired. You got Scott Perry, uh, winding up talking, you know, to Mark Meadows on signal. You got Scott Perry coming in and contacting the number two guy at the Justice Department trying to get him to overturn the election results in his own state. Just absolutely mind-boggling. Now, of course, we, we should all, I guess, not be shocked by any of this at this point. Um, at one point in the hearing, there is a reference to a Bradley Johnson who does this, he's the Italy Gate guy, right, who's pushing the idea on YouTube that, it, I, I believe... Uh, Italian orbital mind control lasers are uh, changing votes and flipping votes. I mean, it is just a bizarre claim that there's the State Department isn't somehow involved and MI6, again, this overall strategy of just, just throw enough bullshit out there and, and see what sticks. 
Well, in this instance, it winds up not sticking. But again, it's extraordinary. You have the members of the Justice Department having to consider YouTube conspiracy theories as evidence. So we'll see what Donahue and Rosen have to say when confronted with the slam dunk evidence from the, the YouTube conspiracy video, this Italy Gate conspiracy video from Bradley Johnson. Mr. Donahue, what was your reaction when you watched that entire 20 minute video? I emailed the acting attorney general uh, and I said pure insanity, which was my impression of the video, which was patently absurd. Mr. Rosen, you were asked by Mr. Meadows uh, to meet with Mr. Johnson, who is the person in that video. What was your reaction to that request? <laughs> so, uh, ordinarily, I'd get an email like this and there was no phone call. It would just you know, come over the transom. But this way, he, he called me, uh, Mr. Meadows, and asked me to meet with Mr. Johnson. Uh, and I told him this whole thing about Italy had been debunked. And that should be the end of that. And I certainly wasn't going to meet with, with this person. And he initially seemed to accept that. Uh, he, uh, he said, you know, well, why, why won't you meet with him? I said, because if, if he has real evidence, which this video doesn't show, he can walk into an FBI field office anywhere in the United States. There's 55 of them. Um, he said, okay. So that didn't work out. And, of course, you know, Perry isn't the only member involved. Um, and ultimately... This, I think, is why the, the, the pardons story winds up becoming part of the story. Because, of course, um, you know, Scott Perry is sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong. And you've got, again, all these just bizarre claims floating around. And you've got the top levels of the Justice Department having to deal with YouTube videos and being fired by their subordinates. Um, fortunately, of course... As I mentioned, Pat Cipollone winds up leading and organizing the charge with people in the Justice Department to try to stand up for the rule of law and basically uh, have this policy, this mass resignation that's going to take place. Cipollone has met with the committee, but there's no video testimony. Uh, presumably they've taken notes, but Kinsinger cites Cipollone's testimony, so they did. But then... Um, he won't meet with the committee so far. So I was hoping that perhaps the surprise witness would be Mr. Zabloni, but that appears not to be the case either, which is a shame because, you know, I don't know why he wouldn't be willing to testify, given that apparently, you know, he stood up and, and did the right thing here. I don't know what Trump has on Mr. Zabloni that he wouldn't, um, because it is kind of surprising to me, given his actions on the day, why he wouldn't want to testify to this, especially when you've got his allies, right? You know, uh, Mr. Donahue, Mr. Rosen, uh, Mr. Engel, all testifying to this and testifying to Mr. Cipollone's own conduct, why he wouldn't be willing to meet with the committee to testify about this. So, those are kind of, I, I think, some of the, the highlights regarding the testimony that wasn't terribly new, but I think these were effective witnesses. Obviously, they're all attorneys, and they're good at testifying, and they, 
did a good job credibly backing up the events of the day. Where again, Jeff Clark, driven by his own ambition, is willing to violate the Constitution, the rule of law, uh, in an effort to become the acting Attorney General of the United States for 17 days. Of course, that wouldn't have been the case, right? Because presumably, had it worked, he would have become, perhaps one day, the real Attorney General in a second Trump administration that had been illegally installed following the overturning of the election results. And of course, ultimately this comes to a head and is only resolved when everyone basically threatens to resign. He would have been left with just Jeff Clark. And so here I think was a good summation of that gambit or that ploy which ultimately was successful by White House attorneys, by the Office of Legal Counsel, by the, the Department of Justice in basically forcing Trump to not fire uh, Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark. Here is Mr. Kensinger uh, asking Mr. Engel uh, about that. Um, Mr. Engel, what was, can you describe what your reaction was to that? <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I think when the president, my recollection is that when the president turned to me and said, Steve, you, you wouldn't leave, would you? Uh, I said, Mr. President, I've been with you through four attorneys general, including two acting attorney general, uh, but I couldn't be part of this. Uh, and then the other thing that I said was that, uh, you know, look, all anyone is going to sort of think about when they see this, no one is going to read this letter. All anyone is going to think is that you went through two attorneys general in two weeks until you found the environmental guy to sign this thing. And so the story is not going to be that the Department of Justice has found massive corruption that would have changed the result of the election. It's going to be the disaster uh, of Jeff Clark. Uh, and I think at that point, Pasadena said, yeah, this is a murder-suicide pact, this letter. So, strong words from uh, Mr. Cipollone, uh, albeit second-hand, right? But, you know, basically a murder-suicide pact, great way to characterize this. Uh, and, of course, this is reminiscent of the Saturday Night, Day Night Massacre in the Nixon administration. Uh, when Nixon winds up firing attorneys general until he gets to Robert Bork, right? Robert Bork, of course, being the guy who does what Nixon wants him to do. And this is one of the things that leads up to uh, the end of the Nixon administration. Very similar thing almost happened here. This would have been worse than the Saturday Night Massacre because you would have had basically the head of the, all the, the, the leading Justice Department attorneys resigning in mass. There's more, of course, but I think those are the highlights related to Jeff Clark's letter that he was going to send out to all the contested states to try to get the state legislatures to anoint these phony slates of electors. So again, that relates to the Eastman thing. It ties it all nicely together. It also relates to uh, the, the campaign to fire, of course, Jeffrey Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark, who basically is doing this, uh, this naked pursuit of ambition I thought the witnesses were compelling. And it also winds up involving, ultimately, the witness that we're going to hear from today, Cassidy Hutchinson. Hutchinson has emerged as a central witness precisely because she is the top aide to Mark Meadows. And Mark Meadows refuses to testify. There are the executive privilege issues. 
Um, so they're trying to work around that. And everything, you know, she's been able to testify to a lot of the things that Meadows knew at the time. And she has fired her attorney. Uh, she had a longtime Trumpist attorney who was working on her, quote, behalf. Um, and she has retained new counsel. So I think that may be part of what is motivating her. She is no longer beholden to the Trump camp. And, of course, this was some of the new testimony that we saw coming out of the hearing on the 23rd. That was the bombshell that they teased this subject of pardons. Again, involving some of the very figures involved with this Jeff Clark campaign. And so now we get to multiple sources, including an email from Representative Mo Brooks requesting a pardon. And so Hutchinson fills in these details. Hirschman also testifies with regard to the pardons. And again, it's significant because if you didn't do anything wrong, you don't need a pardon, right? So this is a tacit acknowledgement of cognizance of guilt on the part of these members of Congress. Here's Mr. Kinzinger queuing up the video testimony. Days after the tragic events of January 6th, some of these same Republican members requested pardons in the waning days of the Trump administration. Five days after the attack on the Capitol, Representative Mo Brooks sent the email on the screen now. As you see, he emailed the White House, quote, pursuant to a request from Matt Gates, requesting a pardon for Representative Gates himself and unnamed others. Witnesses told the select committee that the president considered offering pardons to a wide range of individuals connected to the president. Let's listen to some of that testimony. And was Representative Gates requesting a pardon? believe so. The, the general tone was we may get prosecuted because we were defensive of you know, the president's positions on these things. The pardon that he was discussing, requesting, was as broad as you could describe. The beginning of, from the beginning of time up until today, for any and all things. He mentioned Nixon, and I said Nixon's pardon was never nearly that broad. And are you aware of any members of Congress? Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, I know, both advocated for there to be a blanket pardon for members involved in that meeting and a handful of other members that weren't at the December 21st meeting um, as the preemptive pardons. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. Any of the 
So that's the kind of thing that should make us all very anxious to listen to the sixth committee hearing, right? Because, again, this is the, the point of contact for Mark Meadows, and she's got the receipts, right? There's the Mo Brooks email. You know, basically, six members of, part of Congress who definitely asked for, sorry, seven, no, yes, six, six members who definitely asked for a pardon, one who may have. Um, so, Mo Brooks, Matt Gates, Gates, Mr. Venmo himself wants a pardon going back, you know, uh, forever, right, for everything, uh, which is, you know, not suspicious at all. Uh, you've got Mr. Biggs, of course, the aforementioned Mr. Perry, Mr. Gilmer, and Jim Jordan, all requesting pardons. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, reportedly asking Mr. Philbin for a pardon, uh, although Hutchison is only getting that secondhand. So, you know, it's hearsay evidence in, in this instance, but the committee is not obliged to follow the rules of evidence. So, that was a good bombshell, and I think it was a good hook, and it was a great way for them to have people stay tuned in until the end of the hearing. So I, for one, will be very anxious to hear Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And it looks like there's a whole bunch of people who have a whole bunch to answer for. Jeff Clark winds up taking the Fifth Amendment over 125 times. And a lot of this does ultimately go to the legislative purpose behind the committees. I know we tend to focus on looking at Trump and looking at what they're doing, what, you know, the implications of the path to Trump, his eventual guilt, and hopefully criminal charges resulting from all this. But we also should remember that there is a legislative purpose. And the fact that you've got these acting people, right, and Trump preferred to have people only act, not be permanently appointed and confirmed, made them especially beholden to him, I think is something that really Congress should look into to find a way to ref uh, reform the appointment and confirmation process so that you can't just, you know, indefinitely have all these acting figures in your administration and nothing happens, right? That is basically, you know, a broken process and one of the, the many ways in which Trump abused the power and the authority of the presidency. So, you know... Again, they did nothing wrong, but you have blanket pardons for all members of Congress being floated, uh, who voted against, you know, the actually having a, a fair, free and fair election, right? Blanket pardons for everybody. Uh, Gates asking for a pardon that goes back to the beginning of time, which again, very significant. You know, it shows the fact that these members are conscious of their guilt. Uh, and, of course, Jeffrey Clark has a lot to answer for. Um, and they, again, they delayed the hearing and it wound up being televised uh, on the very day that he got served by the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General. So, you know, it looks like they've been investigating him for months. They've got his phone. They've got all the evidence that they could find. And they've probably got even more evidence. So the committee has evidence. The Department of Justice Office of Inspector General has evidence, and you know, as Hirschman says, uh, he's got he's, he should really be hiring a really good 
fucking lawyer at this point. So, thanks very much. I kind of rushed this one out. I thought I'd have more time to work on it, but the committee is full of surprises. You never seem to know what they're going to be doing. Hopefully, the next one, as it stands, is going to occur after they return from recess on July 12th. So maybe the 13th or the 14th, Bastille Day uh, of July. Not really sure uh, about that yet. You know, as we've seen, they are being very flexible with all this. Now, I know there's a lot of concern about why, you know, why they, they do this. Well, we don't know, ultimately. Um, I think that there may be new video evidence that perhaps uh, Cassie Hutchinson, you know, can corroborate. There may be new audio evidence. There's a, this documentary filmmaker whose material was recently obtained by the committee. I think that this material was supposed to be saved for the final committee hearing. So it, mean, it may mean that we're stuck with the same number of hearings. This won't be an extra hearing. This will be taking the place of the seventh hearing, but they're doing it uh, as the sixth hearing. So out of chronological order, that has not been preserved uh, which is a little bit confusing, you know, to have Liz Cheney uh, offer us this very rational, well-organized plan, and then the committee just isn't sticking to it. But I think that what they're doing is very tactical, and I'm sure that they have a, a good reason for it. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry I played so many audio clips here, but I thought that uh, the testimony was quite good this time. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what Cassie Hutchinson has to say. So until next time, uh, I'll probably be putting out another episode sometime in the next couple of weeks. Certainly do one in response to the hearing, which I'm anxiously awaiting, regarding Trump assembling the mob to assault the Capitol. Because again, I think that there's going to be material that many people will be very much surprised by at that hearing. Thank you so much for listening. Please uh, rate on your podcast app. And until then, I'm Scott Coon.